2: While its largest property developer, Evergrande, is at risk of collapsing, China is facing a seemingly impossible task. Temper the housing bubble while maintaining economic growth. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lay. Also on today's show, more on property but from Europe and America, where financial institutions are becoming landlords.
3: Real estate investment trusts, private equity firms, insurance companies and pension funds are all investing in the single family rental market.
2: And historian Adam Tooze looks back on the
4: unfolding Covid-19 crisis. The Fed should have seen the treasury market disturbance building and should have gotten in harder with larger repo provisions a week sooner.
2: First, Evergrande, China's biggest property developer, has been in the thick of the country's long real estate boom. But cracks in its business appeared last August, when the government started clamping down on excessive corporate debt, and it owes $300 billion. Now it's in deep trouble. Last week it missed a US dollar bond payment to investors outside China and it may be nearing collapse.
0: That was kind of one of the most watched moments in this whole saga that kicked off several months ago. Don Wyland is The Economist's China business and finance correspondent. Just going back a couple months, Evergrande has been struggling to pay some of its suppliers, to pay back bank loans. The government has put in restrictions on how much debt it can take on, And given its business model, which is heavily reliant on increasing its debt load, this has kind of put it into a downward spiral. It's a pretty strong signal that everything that we thought was going to happen is actually now playing out. Today, it actually owes another payment on an offshore U.S. dollar bond, and we still don't know if if that's going to be paid, but it's highly likely that it will also miss that payment.
2: Don, how have financial markets in China and elsewhere reacted to Evergrande's troubles, in particular to its its failure to make one payment and the possibility it might fail to make another? And what would be the repercussions if the worst happens and the company collapses? So in
0: the run-up to last week's payment, there was a very big market reaction. So we saw markets around the world responding to Evergrande's distress I would say things have calmed down since last week, and I think for the next couple weeks, until we really know what the government is going to do about Evergrande, we won't be seeing such a strong
2: market reaction. And what about the Chinese property market as a whole, Don? Are the difficulties at Evergrande symptomatic of broader, deeper troubles? I would say yes.
0: A lot of people have focused on specifically what's going on at Evergrande but these problems at the company are really just a response to the way the the property market works and has worked for many years and what the government is doing to try to change that so the the model of the the market has been high leverage in order to you know buy land in order to build the the buildings uh, you know pay for the construction what happened starting about a year ago is that the government stepped in and put caps on the amount of debt that companies could take on in order to continue in this business and that is slowly kind of unwound the business model that these companies operate on it's really leading to what we're seeing at Evergrande and and several other companies Evergrande is not the only company that is on the brink
2: of default
0: or has already defaulted
2: Concerns about the Chinese property market have been brewing for a very long time, haven't they? So how did we end up where we are? What's the history
0: of this? Starting in the late 80s, they kind of moved from a public housing model to a commercial model, you know, a real property market. What's happened since about 1994, 95 is that market has really gone into overdrive and... Around that time, local governments began using land as their core source of revenue. So they began selling a lot of land, developers began developing a lot of land, and it became one of the pillars of economic growth. And today, of course, it is the number one pillar of economic growth in China. Estimates for what the property market contributes to gross domestic product range anywhere from 15% to, you know, close to 30%. And that depends on what you count as property and construction. But it's a huge chunk. It's the biggest driver of the Chinese economy. So that means that the market is very, very closely connected with China's economic well-being. A downturn in the the property market could really hurt Chinese economic growth. Probably the biggest problem is that Chinese reformers have not been able to delink the property market from economic growth. That's really what we're seeing kind of come to a head right now is the desire to slow down the property market, which has already been running at an incredible pace for a quarter of a century, and trying to slow that down, stabilize it, take speculation out of the market and turn it into a more stable market that grows at a at a more reasonable and affordable rate. So that's really the the difficult situation that Chinese reformers find themselves in, you know, how do we slow this down without completely derailing the economy? And that this is really what everybody's watching right now. Evergrande is kind of on the front line of that.
2: So, what options do they have for decoupling economic growth and and the real estate market? are, are people coming up with with any sensible ideas?
0: I, I don't think that there are easy short-term ways of doing this. So one thing that that can help, is for local governments around China to find other revenue streams that are not based on land sales. For big cities like uh, Shanghai and Beijing, you know, they, they have very diversified revenue streams. They don't have to rely on property sales. But when you get to much smaller cities, they struggle to attract public administration talent and they rely heavily on selling land. So it's a bit lopsided because poor places in China will, will really struggle to move away from land sales as, as a key driver of economic growth. And you know one way of, of solving that is just more urbanization. So for people to move to bigger cities and um, for more of China's economy to be based in more developed places where
2: revenue is more diversified. Is Evergrande too big to fail? And if not, is the property market as a whole? too big to fail?
0: I think from what we've seen so far, Evergrande is probably not too big to fail. It's probably too big to fail completely. And we most likely will see the government step in and take over some of the many projects that it's building around the country. In terms of the property market itself, yes, I I think it's safe to say that the property market in China is too big to fail, given that it's still so closely linked to Economic growth. The property market in China is massive. Total debt exposure to the property sector is about 18.4 trillion yuan. That's about $2.84 trillion. Chinese property is often referred to as the world's biggest asset class. Goldman Sachs tried to put a, a number on it in 2019 and ended up somewhere around. $53 trillion. So if things really go downhill in the Chinese property market over the next couple months or year, you can rest assured that the Chinese government will step in. Whatever they do, they will not let the property market completely collapse. That would be an absolute disaster for Xi Jinping, the president of China, and for the economy in general.
2: Don Weiland, thank you very much. Thank you. Next. Outside China too, troubles are brewing in property markets, although in a rather different and less spectacular way. In Berlin last Sunday, citizens voted to expropriate some of Germany's largest residential property firms, expressing their anger at housing costs. And a renter's revolt comes just when financial firms of all sorts, from property investment trusts to insurers to banks, are muscling into residential property in both Europe and America.
3: What happened in Berlin is significant because it is indicative of the anxiety surrounding soaring rents.
2: Vinjerum Kandawiri is The Economist's property correspondent.
3: It's worth noting that the referendum result is advisory rather than legally binding and that there are expectations that it could simply be rejected by the constitutional court, which earlier struck down the rent freeze in Berlin. Either way, this serves, I think, as a warning for investors that are looking to build up portfolios of rental housing of just how politically sensitive housing can be.
2: In your story in the paper this week, You write about how big financial firms have been investing in the rental home market in both America and Europe. Why are they doing it and what sort of scales it on and what's the impact been?
3: Real estate investment trusts, private equity firms, insurance companies and pension funds are all investing in the single family rental market. In America, that's meant that around $87 billion of institutional money has gone into the market during the first half of this year alone. And that means that around 16 percent Uh, of single family homes were bought by investors, for example, in the second quarter. That's up from roughly 9% a year earlier. In Europe, we're seeing a similar shift Big names such as Goldman Sachs, Aviva, and legal in general are also wading into the market. We've also seen Lloyds Bank, which is Britain's largest mortgage lender. They're moving into housing with a target to purchase around 50,000 homes within the next decade, reportedly. And that could make it the country's largest landlord. So there is a lot of interest.
2: That sounds like an awful lot of money. Uh, what's the effect of that being?
3: Investors actually still own a small share of the market. In America, they own just 2% of the total rental housing stock. In Europe, less than 5% of residential real estate is in the hands of larger uh, publicly traded funds. But in cities where investors have been increasingly active, it's having more of an impact. They frequently pay with cash, and this gives them an edge over buyers with a mortgage in a competitive market. So, for example, in America, one in six home sales went to an investor between April and June, uh, whereas in cities like Atlanta, Miami, and Phoenix, the figure was one in four.
2: Why are they so interested in rental property? Why are they piling in to such a great extent?
3: Investors are searching for a high yielding hedge against inflation. So unlike offices and retail stores, which have been affected by lockdowns, residential property offers a safe haven for investors to park their capital.
2: This isn't the first time we've seen a hot investment market like this, is it? There was a similar trend after the financial crisis of 2007 to 2009, for example. So so what's different this time?
3: Yeah, so Blackstone is one of the big investors that started to purchase homes after the financial crisis. So many of the homes that Blackstone and others bought were vacant or in disrepair, and they showed up at foreclosure auctions across America's courthouses. And um, Steve Schwartzman, in his biography, describes people from Blackstone driving street by street, comparing neighborhoods and school districts, I think the difference now is slightly more favorable demographics. In the years following the recession, millennials had just graduated and many of them were establishing their careers. A lot of them flocked to apartment blocks in big cities and the pull of urban living. Now millennials are aging and they want a bit more space. So. The 35 to 44-year-old cohort is expecting to grow at double the pace of the American average over the next five years. But at the same time, really high house prices means that a lot of them are renting instead. Renting a home rather than an apartment gives them an option to have uh, a spare room for an office or even just more room to raise children and so it offers a temporary solution to uh, lack of housing affordability. But secondly the pandemic has also contributed to this. A permanent increase in remote working is expected to boost demand for homes further away from city centres.
2: And all this investment in residential property, is it paying off for these big financial institutions?
3: So returns in American Europe are expected to outpace the rest of the real estate industry in the coming years. If you look at Blackstone, for example, uh, the amount that it spent on housing uh, immediately after the financial crisis earned it nearly $7 billion in dividends paid before and since it listed Invitation Homes, which was the company it built. And so it made more than twice its initial investment.
2: Gosh, that's pretty impressive. And some of the uh, people who are renting from them blame financial investors for high house prices and rising rents. What's the political response been to that?
3: At an aggregate level, we think that's a difficult case to make, first and foremost. Um, Professional investors own just 2% of the total stock in America. In Europe, less than 5% of residential real estate is in the hands of large publicly traded funds. I think The political response, we've seen most policies centered around eviction limitations in response to the pandemic, for example, but also rent controls that limit the amount a landlord can let their property for, or even how much, say, an investor can buy. Uh, For developers, there's the risk that any meaningful changes could limit returns or affect how their assets are priced. So, For example, the White House is placing limits on the sale of lower cost homes to large investors, whereas in Ireland, property taxes were raised to stop institutional investors from buying family homes that would otherwise be marketed to first-time buyers.
2: What about the economic effect of these interventions? Do they make sense? Are they the right thing to do?
3: Well, research shows that there are limits to such regulatory responses. They don't always solve the rental problem and the real issue of affordability. So one study showed that rent control policies in Catalonia, a region of Spain, not only failed to make the market more affordable, but they actually worked against it. The number of homes fell by 12%, while prices remained largely unchanged. Researchers studying the impact of a five-year rent freeze in Berlin found that the number of rental properties actually slummed last year. And the constitutional court has since struck down that rent freeze, but it shows that the policy was not effective.
2: Finjeru, what is the answer to the shortage of supply?
3: The solution lies in finding a way to build more homes. At the moment, not enough housing stock is coming onto the market. Shortages of labor and materials have stalled that growth, and less home building increases the chance that rents will rise too. Uh, And that will continue to frustrate policymakers and aspiring homeowners who can't afford to buy a home. But our argument is that capping the earnings of institutional investors will do little to fix that crisis.
2: Vinjeru and Kandawiri, thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Patrick.
2: And you can read Vinjeru's analysis on our website, along with the latest on the stock markets, America's debt ceiling, and much more. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory deal. Finally, the global economic recovery from COVID-19 is far from complete. Supply chains remain disrupted. Inflation has jumped. Markets are jittery. As governments and central banks are still working out what to do, is it too soon to learn from the economic impact of the pandemic? In his new book, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy, Adam Tooze
4: a history professor at Columbia University, attempts to do just that. For me, the fascination of doing this was precisely that it exposes a different dimension of what history is, which is not necessarily the long backward glance or the thing hewn out of the archival rock, but in fact an attempt to grasp historicity, in other words, our experience of time passing, shocks happening, us struggling to put categories and frames on them, As they happen, Ryan Avent, a senior editor at The Economist, spoke to him
1: for Money Talks. In the global financial crisis, I think there was a sense that the economic policymakers were often using an outdated playbook. They hadn't quite caught up to where maybe the literature was regarding interest rates and things like that. This time, there was radical action by central banks and also by treasuries as well in a way that sort of, you know, they were blazing trails that, you know, we sort of have to figure out what we're doing as we go. Is it preferable to do it that way? Do you feel like there, to
4: some extent, is a reckoning coming? Um, How do you think about that? I don't think at the time there was any option because what we're talking about here is the most important financial market melting down. And you're right to say that there was some learning and we were perhaps a little bit further, you know, closer to the curve than we were in 2008. We were still behind the curve. What happened in the Treasury market? Was really shocking. I mean, I don't say this very loudly in the book, but I do think there is an argument, and this is really inside baseball. The Fed should have acted a week sooner. The Fed should have seen the Treasury market disturbance building and should have gotten in harder with larger repo provisions you know, a week earlier. Now, that's a, in some sense, a sort of small criticism to make. But the scale of the destabilisation in the second and third week of March was was epic. And it's the big untold and, you know, let's kind of keep it then the the download, to be absolutely honest, because it's a deeply disturbing story about the notion, the safe assets that are there are the longer term implications from this. Of course, there are. But we were choosing between bad alternatives, right? One of the effects is clearly that it heats up the dynamic of yield chasing in equity markets above all. And we have seen huge surges in the values of equity portfolios for everyone affluent enough to have one. And that is hugely weighted in the wrong direction.
1: One of the things that I think uh, the book brings out that was interesting was the way in which, you know, emerging markets kind of manage, at least financially, much better than people probably would have expected. And that, you know, a lot of that was because they'd become more sophisticated in their policymaking making but it also sort of feels like markets and, and institutions gave them cut them all more of a break is this a, a temporary respite is it something to do with the way that the crisis has unfolded
4: or you know are we in a new era for emerging market policymaking first of all we underestimated the impact of the fed's decision making which then just squirts dollar liquidity everywhere the dollar stops appreciating begins to depreciate takes the pressure off We underestimated, I think you're right, the willingness of markets to stick with the EM story. Of course, this is in part yield driven, right? If you can't get anything on European or American bonds, then Peru can issue a 100-year bond at the end of 2020, despite its politics, right? But the third thing is that the emerging market players, their financial elites, their central banks, their treasuries are much better equipped. And they have a much wider arsenal. And also, they've been sort of doctrinally unfettered. The IMF won't quite come out and say we approve capital controls and no one really wants to do them because they're an active extremist. But we know perfectly well that that's in the repertoire now, as is intervention in macroprudential intervention in private balance sheets and huge exchange reserves. This is crucial. All of these, they're not China size, but they're very large in relation to GDP. And this gives central banks in the emerging market countries, they've all learned the lesson not to defend the peg because you just get burnt. But what you can do instead is manage the depreciation. And that gives your debtors time to adjust to the depreciation in your currency key to managing these kind of crises. So that combination of things, I I think, really did enable the countries to get through in financial terms, crucial distress, again, this discrepancy, right, financial competence and capacity, real economic and public health disaster. And of course, we're not out of the woods, because as we all know, there is the distinct probability of a taper tantrum at some point down the line, that's still a risk on the horizon. So, so turning to those, you know, those more tangible things, the real
1: economy, and especially the public health situation in emerging markets, but you have this incredible scene in the book where you know, the G20 leaders are sitting around saying, how are we gonna, uh, you know, who's willing to pay uh, to, to help vaccinate the emerging world? And, and Angela Merkel sort of throws out this number that's pitifully small, 500 million euros. Why, you know, why this failure to
4: do something that's so clearly in the interest of the rich world? It is a profound puzzle. I mean, the book, I think, is not really answering that question so much as just trying to shout as loudly as possible, are we aware of just how dysfunctional this is? Like in February 2020, the whole world watched as China locked down Wuhan and Hubei and said, oh, oh, it's a Chinese problem, they're doing their usual thing. Like, we carry on. This has no implications for us. That is a cognitive dissonance in the current world we cannot allow ourselves. If China is shutting down the connections between Wuhan and Beijing, every major city, every mayor in the world should be screaming at the national government, we're next, tell us what we're going to do now. And the vaccine story is the same sort of cognitive disconnect. This shouldn't be misunderstood as some sort of humanitarian gesture. That cliche of no one is safe until we're all safe is just flat out literally true in our current interconnected world with an infectious disease like this. We know it's mutated. It's mutated in the wrong direction. It's one or two mutations away from completely overwhelming our capacity to cope. Now, the molecular biologists are relatively sanguine about that, but there is no reason for us to be calm about this situation at this moment. So the fact, as you say, that that 500 million seems like a reasonable first offer. It it should really be, okay, we're putting down half who wants to come in for the rest. Because this is a economically rational, be you're spending this money on good things, great jobs, investments in, you know, who doesn't want to have more molecular biologists and lab technicians? This is the work of the future, right, that we're actually investing in here. I'm just articulating in narrative form the message that the IMF, to their credit, have been banging on hard all year long. And it really is a sign, I think, of the maturation of the IMF as a much more holistic agency of global governance that it's just joining these dots up and just it leaves no one any excuse. Are we underestimating kind of the role Europe might play? Is is Europe kind of a fundamentally a good news story, uh, do you think? Europe is still, you know, it's at least a year behind the US in terms of the pace of its recovery. And that will show up, right? Because ultimately, Europe's source of influence in the world is its size and significance as a market. That's what gives the Brussels effect its heft, right? its ability to regulate and set terms. And unless Europe can sustain a GDP growth rate that keeps it in that large power league, it progressively becomes less and less significant on the global stage. The story is still unfolding.
1: Your book ends with this sort of ominous line that we ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, what do you, uh, what worries you most? What do you see over the horizon that becomes the next chapter that is is something that, you know, uh, that's really concerning?
4: Immediately right now is simply we're not done with this pandemic and that we're pretending as though we are. That's, I think, the single most alarming feature to take forward. At the time that we're speaking, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are becoming ever infected every day. Thousands are dying and big parts of the American hospital system are clinging on for dear life. And that's our reality right now. And we cannot persuade substantial minorities of advanced economy populations to get vaccinated or to comply with basic social distancing provisions in an an equitable and civil manner. And this was really an easy test. You know, you could spin off all the other things into the background, climate change, the confrontation with China, but I think we should stay focused on the problem immediately at hand. And we're so not done with this problem. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
2: Our thanks to Adam Twos and Ryan Avent and to you for listening to Money Talks. We're not done either. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app. Or you can write to us at podcasts at The producers were Juliette Chabquiro and Amika Shortino-Nolan. And the editor was Sandra Schmooley. Nico Rofast was our sound engineer. I'm Patrick Lane, and in London, this is The Economist.